We're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Almost a year ago, in May 2022, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and thus overturning the constitutional right to an abortion was leaked to the press and officially decided about a month later with the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case. After that decision was handed down, we talked on this podcast with EFF's Eva Galperin about its implications and how technology could amplify a surveillance on women's reproductive health. The Federal Trade Commission, the White House, civil society, industry, and lots of other stakeholders have gotten to thinking since then. What is the role of digital privacy and security in protecting women from being prosecuted by their state or local governments for receiving life-saving care. In this episode, we revisit that subject in a broader lens. I sat down with Kirk Nara, partner and co-chair of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Wilmer Hale, a large international law firm, and Jordan Wrigley, a health privacy researcher at the Future of Privacy Forum, leading FPF's Health Privacy Working Group. These two folks are some of the leading health data privacy experts in the country, and we get into what the American legal landscape looks like for health privacy, some of the FTC's recent actions in this space, and more. Kirk is also a professor at American University's Washington College of Law. So fittingly, welcome to Health Privacy 101. All right. Thank you so much. Kirk Nara, Jordan Wrigley, for being here with us on the Tech Policy Grind. I'm really interested in this discussion of health privacy. There's a ton going on in the field. Uh, So this is a particularly timely moment, I think, to be having these discussions. Uh, But just to get us started on the Tech Policy Grind, we always like to learn a little more about who we're chatting with and sort of your backgrounds and how you got into the space. So could you share how you first got into health privacy and what your role is and sort of what keeps you the most busy with it these days? Jordan, go ahead first. Thanks so much, Rima. So I had sort of a winding path to privacy and health privacy in particular I started out as an environmental scientist and social scientist, leading to interest in gathering health data for things like city planning. Um, And that eventually led to me becoming a trained librarian, earning two master's degrees, and eventually a data scientist with particular interest in things like clinical trials and how we deal with health data outside of HIPAA. And so my role is a researcher and lead for the Future of Privacy Forum's health and wellness portfolio. Um, so I handle everything within that, including a working group, um, various P2Ps, education, outreach, etc. And really what's keeping me busy these days is the FTC. There have been two very big complaints recently happenings um, that really have changed the health data privacy landscape significantly. So very much happening these days. It's been a big start to 2023. 
Yeah, so my uh, path is is perhaps equally windy. It's a, a much older path. You know, I, I came out of law school, went to, you know, went to a firm in, in D.C. where I had been a summer associate. Um, at that time, privacy law didn't exist. I had a very, um, you know, sort of an odd path because I said I, I, I ended up you know, essentially a dozen years later, I was already a young partner at my old firm. I worked a lot with health insurers in particular. In the course of some of those cases, I did a little bit of work with a very small number of laws that were state privacy laws on mental health in a couple of states. Um, fast forward a little bit, uh, we start having the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act at the federal level and then the HIPAA rules. My clients were mainly health insurers who happened to be, by accident, the only industry segment who were covered by both of those laws. And so all of a sudden, there's a new set of laws that applied to my particular group of clients. Nobody knew anything about any of it. I knew a little tiny bit about it. And so I just started doing work in that area. You know, my role today is I run a group at a law firm. I'm the, the co-chair of the Global Cybersecurity and Privacy Practice at Wilmer Hale. Um, I've been in this is that I've been in the health privacy field basically for as long as there has been a field. And so I've been able to watch it, um, you know, watch it from the beginning with the HIPAA rules, where, again, everyone was just trying to figure out what to do and how to build basic compliance programs. We had a period of reasonable stability for you know a decade or so. And now we are, as Jordan alluded to a few minutes ago, entered a period of wild instability. And um, there are some things on the horizon which we can talk about, which will also, you know, have, have some some possibility of sort of blowing up the framework that we've been working with. And so really interesting time to be in this field with a lot, uh, a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to level set with HIPAA, uh, as you mentioned, that that really kind of kicked off the field of health privacy. So what is HIPAA? What does it stand for? Um, what do what do people need to know about it? So, so I, you know, I, I teach a, a health privacy class at American University of Washington College of Law, and on the first day of class, I will put the name of the statute up on the screen: Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. I think the most important thing to understand about HIPAA, if you are thinking about privacy issues, thinking about how this fit in, fits in, is that. HIPAA is not a set of rules that is entirely designed to regulate health privacy. As a result of the P, which is for portability, and some other parts of the statute, we ended up with a set of privacy regulations that applies to particular entities in the healthcare system, doctors, hospitals, pharmacies, and health insurers. It's an important part of the healthcare system. It's probably the core of the healthcare system, but it is in no way all of the healthcare system. And so it applies, the HIPAA rules, HIPAA privacy rule apply to, you know, limited data held by limited people in limited contexts. One of the things that we're dealing with in the field that, that, that creates a lot of the complexity is that there's an increasing amount of healthcare information that isn't regulated by the HIPAA rule. So you have to know where HIPAA applies, where it doesn't apply, and the importance of where it doesn't apply is growing enormously and creating lots of challenges. If you search HIPAA, you probably have to search it misspelled, but you'll see people you know, screaming about violations of their HIPAA rights. They're almost never right about that. <laughs> they're, they're almost always complaining about something that isn't, in fact, covered by HIPAA. 
Yeah, that is useful to know. I do hear all the time friends of mine <laughs> saying, uh, you know, talking about medical records and talking about HIPAA violations um, in contexts where it likely doesn't apply. So in addition to HIPAA, what are some of the other laws that are relevant in in this space? The first ones that come to mind, of course, are the state comprehensive laws that are currently either underway or are already in effect or shortly to be in effect. Each one of them contains some level of reference to something we would consider health data and how it can be used and can't be used. These state comprehensive laws get into trying to give consumers a certain level of similar control over their data, including not just limited to health data, but including what we would consider health data. In addition to comprehensive state privacy laws, other health-focused and in post-Dobbs, reproductive health-focused and gender health-focused laws, such as that HB 1155 in Washington, which I believe just passed the state Senate, uh, we're seeing those in particular pop up in a post-Dobbs landscape. Jordan mentioned some of the comprehensive comprehensive state laws. If you're a California resident, your health information is covered today by at least five, probably six different legal regimes. You have HIPAA for, for your sort of common, you know, your doctor, doctor hospital stuff. There's a California state medical privacy law, which applies in some situations and is exempted from CCPA. Um, then you have rules, for example, for medical research, which are different, not really laws, sort of laws, sort of next door to laws, but again, not, not part of CCPA. Then you have CCPA, which covers some things that aren't covered by those first three. You have this very uh, confusing patchwork, even within the healthcare industry. I mean, the, 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 the comprehensive laws that Jordan mentioned, will cover certain things that aren't covered by other laws, but that means you always have multiple sets of rules applicable to the same data, depending on who has it, for what purposes, in what relationships. The other thing we're seeing, and, and some of this is tied to Dobbs, tied to other issues as well, is more and more data that isn't obviously about your health anyways, but is being used in connection with, with health-related situations. Dobbs information, you know, location data, for example, your location data, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're sitting in your apartment today, you're sitting in your office today, that doesn't say anything about your health, right? That's location, that shows you you're in your office. However, if your phone is in an abortion clinic or in a hospital or in lots of other places, maybe it does show something about your health. That's a huge confusion as well. And it's not just limited to location. We're learning about, um, I like to use in my class, a study that involved um, three pieces of data, marital status, income, and number of cars to predict certain utilization of certain kind of healthcare services. The, 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 the very simple question, what other laws apply, is very hard to answer. Kirk's got the nail on the head, which is that everything bleeds together, is in policy in the past, like HIPAA, we've had very sort of concrete, even spatial ways to define this is the context in which this applies. We had covered entities and not covered entities. And it was all very cut and dry and clear for the most part. These days with, you know, direct-to-consumer health products and all sorts of direct-to-consumer health empowerment technology. I love the aspect of empowerment in modern health technologies. Um, we're in this sort of new realm 
where health touches everything. Um, Kirk was mentioning things like marital status and things like owning a certain amount of cars, uh, whether it's you own a junkyard or you own a collection of Ferraris may matter to your health or may be indicative of it. So we call those the social determinants of health. The, the other thing that I think is important to think about in the healthcare context, and it makes it makes the policy choices so much harder, is that you know if, if, if we're looking at, I don't know, general online advertising, you're looking at a retailer, you're looking at, you know, just some store or something like that. There's obviously a lot of things to talk about on privacy. We care about that. There are issues to consider there. But, you know, my my data about what I bought online, you guys don't care about that. And society doesn't really care about that. But in the healthcare context, all of these choices have much more important policy implications. And I think that's one of the, the hard issues. I mean, for example, we're dealing with social determinants of health more and more in the healthcare system. You know, this healthcare system's finally understanding the relevance of some of those factors. And so there's actually a current rulemaking proceeding at the Department of Health and Human Services to perhaps modify HIPAA to permit more disclosures of health information to these social service agencies. But the way HIPAA works, that would mean that data is going from a hospital where it's protected by HIPAA to a food bank or a housing agency that's not covered by HIPAA. There's just a choice there. There's a clear tension. Do we want to encourage that for other public policy reasons, or do we want to have privacy uh, protections there? Um, even even the overall approach to consent in the in the HIPAA rules, for example, I think it's the single most important part of the HIPAA rules, is that the way they thought about consent when they were writing the rules is they basically said there was a recognition that if you gave individual patients more privacy rights, more ability to pick and choose that that would actually be bad for the healthcare system, which usually ends up meaning bad for patients. And so that was a very important policy choice. But that's an issue. That's not an obvious answer. You both get at health privacy's scoping problem. There's health data, there is sensitive data, there's sensitive inferences that you can make from health data, and then there's biometric data, and it's sort of a question of which falls under which. Well, and even, uh, even, the, even the, the, the sensitive part. I mean, I, I try to get my students to think about that. I, uh, I play a lot of tennis. I go out on the tennis court. I badly sprain my ankle and I need some surgery on that. Yes, it's health information. I get it. Is it particularly sensitive? Hard for me to say it's particularly sensitive. If LeBron James breaks his ankle playing in a, in a pickup basketball game and he'll never play again, the whole world cares about that all of a sudden. It's the exact same piece of data about just about a different person. HIPAA treats all your health information basically the same. So your name and address and the fact that you had a physical last year gets the exact same treatment as your HIV status, your mental health status, your cancer status. I don't, you know, I don't know that that's the right answer. Yeah, I think that LeBron example perfectly encapsulates why context is such an important part of these discussions around health privacy. And we've been talking throughout this discussion a lot about Dobbs, and I want to dig into that a little more. So within the regulatory landscape in particular, the Federal Trade Commission has been the subject of lots of discussion within privacy and cyberspaces, generally speaking, these days, not just within the health context. But with health privacy in particular, the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision by the Supreme Court was sort of a blow to 
traditional privacy law before uh, sort of data privacy law came into the foray. Um, and also bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, etc. And so during this podcast's previous season, we engaged in some discussion around the consequences of the Dobbs decision uh, for sort of everyday people and whatnot. But now we've been seeing some of those consequences uh, in the past almost year since that decision was first leaked uh, and then eventually decided in June. Uh, so the FTC has established that protecting reproductive rights uh, in this post-Dobbs world uh, is a priority. But what have you been seeing from the commission uh, as far as how those priorities are, are playing out and obligations for companies? Um, definitely a pivot towards considering what health data is. I think Dobbs really catalyzed something that was going to happen anyway, but sort of lit a fire under it, um, which is that some health data is, air quotes, sensitive, um, based on the harms and risks that may come with using it for various purposes. Um, and I generally ha genuinely have seen like a real pivot towards... Who's going to regulate this? Um, and that was a question before, but it wasn't really a acute need to define who's going to regulate this. In post-Dobbs landscape, there's an acute need to figure out who's going to regulate the information that could lead to um, people who can give birth getting taken in by law enforcement, could lead to marginalization, etc. Those contours of law and policy and good practices for data and health data are something that was needed before, but now are really needed, not just for consumers, but for companies. Yeah, and I, I think, look, I, I think the FTC is doing two things. One is a Dobbs effort. Second is a broader healthcare effort, which is not directly tied to Dobbs at all, I don't think. They've brought a case that they brought, I think last August, I want to say now, against a location data broker. And basically said, because your location, the location data that you collect can be used in some circumstances to identify things like reproductive rights issues, it's not just reproductive rights issues. They went out of their way to say religious and a variety of other, other kinds of things. We believe that your use and collection of that data is unfair. Really interesting theory. And I'm, you know, we're going to watch that case play out. And I'm not at all sure the FTC is going to win that case based on its existing authority to regulate unfair and deceptive trade practices. You know, they've, they've done a lot of cases where there has been a deceptive element, a false representation, but now they're moving towards creating this law of unfairness. The, the two more recent cases, which is that are health-related, but I would not say are specifically Dobbs-related. They don't exclude Dobbs information, but they're not focused on that, are a case involving GoodRx and a case involving a company called BetterHelp. Um, they are both situations where the FTC has taken a particular element of what was going on, um, usually some kind of deceptive statement in a privacy policy, where the companies not regulated by HIPAA were collecting information, again, mainly sensitive, although not all of it was even sensitive information, but a lot of better help was probably all sensitive information. GoodRx may not have been all sensitive information. You know, re really sensitive information. And it's basically said, we think you made deceptive statements. In GoodRx, they said, we also think you violated this other law we have about data breaches for personal health records. And 
they don't quite say this, but because we got you on those things, we're going to also get you on saying what you did is unfair. In, the, in those cases, oddly enough, they have precluded the defendants as part of the settlement agreements from doing things that actually the HIPAA rule would allow them to do in terms of advertising. I mean, companies, a hospital, for example, is allowed to use health information of the hospital's patients to engage in certain marketing communications with the hospital's patients. They can say, for example, you know, you, you, you were, you know, they, they say, we knew it. We know you were here last year to deliver a baby. Um, we wanted to let you know that we've opened a great new pediatrics wing and we've brought in all these new doctors. And we want you to know about our wonderful new pediatrics. wing. You're allowed to do that under the HIPAA rules. The FTC cases are going to say to these companies, you can't do that. What, what we're watching right now is the FTC sort of implement something it's been talking about for a number of years, which is we're very concerned about healthcare data that's not regulated by HIPAA. Yeah. And on the Kachava case that you mentioned, the FTC's case against um, against a data broker uh, for their you know, sort of displaying of uh, sensitive data and data that could have uh, inferences about people's health choices, uh, that to me is an interesting sort of example of where some of these uh, context-driven um, and, and sensitive inference-driven uh, choices are playing out. Well, even, even, even in the health, I mean, location data showing that you're at a hospital or a doctor's office in general, how does that compare to showing that you're at an abortion clinic? Those are probably, you know, the, 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 the fact that you're in a doctor's office or a hospital may mean almost nothing. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, the fact that you're, you're, your phone is in an abortion clinic doesn't inherently all automatically mean something, but it might be. But hospital could be a million different things. And it's uh, the, the whole location issue. You know, there, there, there were there were people who who when, when that coach of a decision was for that decision, a complaint was first released. We're basically saying, oh, well, these companies should be able to filter out all the all the abortion clinics. How do you do that exactly? How do you, you know, when do you go to the master list of abortion clinics that posted something? You know, there's no list like that. There's no, I mean, for very obvious reasons, there's no there's no list of that. There's certainly no list of every doctor in the country. And something like the Dobbs case, just what it, what it does is it accentuates a particular kind of concern, very important concern. But it's very hard to isolate that issue from everything else. And so where some of the public policy developments are isolating that issue, but it's isolating it in a way that I'm not sure it can really be isolated. And so I think we need to think about all the all the downstream consequences of that. I want to tack on to that just a little bit because this is fascinates me um, in a sad way, kind of. Cochaba, which is based in Sandpoint, Idaho, and Idaho is my home state. It's been fascinating to watch this process as an original of that state. Fascinatingly, recently in the same area, in the same near city, there's a hospital that will no longer develop, deliver babies at all. No OBGYN care, no nothing. In part due to Dobbs and the issues around information getting out. They've just made this extreme choice of like, we're just not doing this anymore. Um, because we don't feel safe doing it. Or we don't feel safe if our practitioners or providers could be caught out and um, 
law enforcement come into our hospital and start taking our doctors and patients, um, which is such an, I mean, to Kirk's point, that's such an extreme decision. Um, and maybe it was necessary. Maybe there was no other way in the minds of the people running this health system, but that leads to extreme issues like healthcare and OBGYN deserts. And so it was really fascinating to me that the, the, the physical geolocation of Kochava and the physical geolocation of this hospital sort of shutting down in terms of maternal and infant care uh, just happened in the same place. Now, if you know Idaho <laughs> and have been keeping track of what's going on there as a state, it sort of starts to make sense in a really unfortunate way. Um, but and how much data collection, how much data selling and use of data plays in the into this um, is sort of anyone's debate but we sort of start to see that there's a very reactionary aspect to this, which to me speaks to how we understand what is sensitive. If there's going to be an extreme reaction to it with extreme choices, then somehow we have conceptualized this information. That is so fascinating. And Kirk earlier had mentioned that there are these tensions that exist between protecting privacy rights and privacy interests and actually distributing health services and having those sort of available. And Jordan, I think your example points to how that can really go both directions, both as privacy rights are infringed upon that can affect uh, the availability and distribution of services, but goes the other direction as well in certain contexts. And I think that really just underscores the importance of this field and the decision-making that regulators and legislators sort of have to make. So I want to go back into those um, two major enforcement actions in the health space from the FTC. Jordan, what have you been seeing as uh, sort of how those cases are different from what we've seen before from FTC action and sort of their implications on the field generally? So from a completely clinical, no pun intended, perspective, um, these both these cases are really fascinating. Um, GoodRx, in which the FTC brought a complaint against GoodRx, which has both HIPAA aspects and non-HIPAA aspects. Their HIPAA aspect was an acquisition of something called Hey Doctor, which was a telehealth service um, primarily around prescribing, which makes a lot of sense for their business model, which is around providing discounts, coupons for medications um, and prescriptions. And so one of the things that was really fascinating about this uh, particular case was this was the first application of the health breach notification rule that we've seen the FTC use. Um, in addition, it was also really fascinating to see how we were sort of defining health data in this case. So instinctually, we have an idea in our heads of what constitutes health data that may come with sensitive inferences versus health data that does not. So in an example, Lipitor, uh, a prescription that you might get, is for high cholesterol, and it makes sense that it's not really that sensitive. Um, but the other prescriptions that were involved in some of the data gathering were things like antipsychotics, benzos, etc., which, depending on where they are in the schedule of drugs, based on um, the Substances Act, you're not even allowed to advertise for them. However, um, you could still advertise things like discounts 
for various prescriptions. Um, so that was the most interesting aspect for me within the GoodRx complaint was one, the HBNR, and then two, um, this whole encompassing aspect of the scoping issues. Like, we're just going to take it all. It's all sensitive data regardless. And then lastly, for this one, and this is true in both these cases, was the effect of ban against using their data to advertise across the board. Um, which there is precedence for. New Zealand and the U.S. are the only uh, countries that allow direct-to-consumer pharma uh, advertising. So there is precedence for that. It's a pretty broad and all-encompassing, and yes, it's more complicated than that, <laughs> but it's one of the things a lot of folks go to um, when they're thinking about some of these things, and it feeds into ideas of use around data rather than categorizing data as sensitive and not sensitive. So the second case, which was almost exactly a month later, so the second case or uh, complaint against BetterHelp, which is predominantly and primarily a telehealth service, which has different um, variations. They have a service for Christian individuals. They have a service for LGBTQIA individuals. And so it's a multi-site telehealth provider. And I want to say here, pause for a second, no one is able to deny that telehealth and things like virtual healthcare don't have great value. They really do. Um, they're accessible um, to people who are in rural areas. Sometimes they're more acceptable to people who are in low resource situations. So the question becomes, how do we regulate and provide uh, support and structure and contours for these things in a way that protects the data that is by nature collected in the virtual and digital setting? Um, so in the case of BetterHelp, this was absolutely fascinating. Emails became sensitive health information, effectively what we would call PHI, protected health information, because of the nature of them being put into BetterHelp. So BetterHelp is a telehealth service that offers mental health care. Based on my reading of the complaint, just the fact that the email was input into their platform, into their site, says this is now sensitive health data because the inference can be made that the only reason you would be putting your email into something like BetterHelp is because you're seeking mental health services. Now, that's a little... I could be seeking mental health services for a friend. I could just be curious. I could be a researcher, as I am, curious about how their system works. But with that email came all of these questions, a pretty standard questionnaire in the medical health, uh, mental health community, um, which is assessing like where are you at, you know, how likely are you to be self-harming or thinking about suicide? What are your needs? Um, where could your mental health issues be stemming from? And that questionnaire is necessary to connect people to a good provider to get them a counselor or get them the mental health care they need. That said, in this space, now we have that data that in any other situation would be given by a provider and considered protected or most other situations. I mean, everybody's filling out, filled out buzz uh, BuzzFeed quizzes a few years ago, and we didn't think about some of it's the same information. Um, and people would you know, fill out a BuzzFeed quest based on like their mental health and it would say, oh, you should eat more kiwi. Uh, so what is the difference? Unsure. That said, that email combined with that sort of questionnaire data became feasibly sensitive, became now you have not only something indicating someone's mental health state, you have an identifying 
uh, piece of information. You have a unique identifier, which is the email, could also be the IP address, et cetera. Um, and there are options there. But similarly to GoodRx, there was yet again another ban against using the data for advertising. So to summarize, I thought this was these two complaints were really, really interesting, um, really fascinating to look at from a clinical perspective. Um, and I think what I saw in this is a really interesting shift, not only towards just going big with the scope of what is health data, but also with the use of what might be considered health data, um, which is to say, you know, banning it, considering. And I'm very curious in the next few years, are we going to see the FTC sort of move towards banning various uses such as advertising, if not whole, then in part, such as targeted advertising, or are we going to see something more along those categorical lines, which is maybe a little bit more GDPR-esque? With the GoodRx and BetterHelp complaints, something that's interesting about those two companies is, Jordan, like you mentioned, they are providing health or health-related services to consumers, right, with these mostly sort of digitized platforms. As IoT, Internet of Things devices, uh, health apps, etc., sort of emerge within the market, what sort of stands out to you as a concern? And when is, you know, the use of health data uh, within these different digital tools and, and products useful? Well, let me jump in on a couple of points there. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I think GoodRx and BetterHelp, if all you do is just read the words on the paper, they ban, you know, they, 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 they say you, you were deceptive on what you said, you've done other things that violated various things, and what you did was unfair, and as a result of that, we're going to order you as a settlement to not do a variety of things. I want to watch a case in the future where the company fully and accurately said what they were doing, where they were clear in their you know, policies. You make a pop, you know, whatever you want to do and just, just create your best case scenario. We've told you everything. If you want to use our service, here's what we're going to do. Nobody's making you use GoodRx or BetterHelp. But if I'm clear and upfront about what I'm doing, I want to see if the FTC is going to build a case that says, even though you fully disclosed it, it's unfair. Now, that's really, again, that's an interesting position. They are seeking a rule to define what that unfairness is. But in these cases, they're just saying, we're going to say it's unfair. Similarly, think about other kinds of health information. I mean, I, I get stuff all the, I see stuff all the time where, for, for example, it'll, it'll ask me about athletic activity. It'll ask me about um, how active am I? They'll ask me, you know, because because they know how old I am. They'll ask me about, you know, are are you, do you feel like you do have these goals? Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to get more active? Do you want to be more flexible? They're they're getting me to, you know, getting me to try yoga programs. I I'm not sure how much I care about that. I mean, I I know what I'm getting into. I know I'm going to get ads about that. I'm, you know, I'm okay with that, but it's not, you know, the idea that that's inherently unfair is a little interesting. My concern, I guess, with what I see the FTC doing is that they are, they're building law through enforcement rather than through law. They have done that one time before in our general field. Maybe they've done it a bunch of times, but they did that with 
how they regulated data security. They started bringing cases against companies saying it's unfair for you not to have data security, good, uh, reasonable and appropriate data security. They brought about 50 cases. They brought them against companies that didn't fight back for a variety of complicated reasons, perfectly understandable complicated reasons. And then when somebody did fight back, the courts basically said, nah, you're too late. They already did 50 cases. So we're watching that on the privacy side right now. We're watching as they start to build these cases because the people in my field, particularly those of us who are old enough to have gone through the first time with data security, we know what they're trying to do. And again, it's kind of a weird result for the courts to say, yeah, if you had challenged this at the beginning, it would, you would have won, but because you're challenging it later, you lose. That's a weird way to build law. We have ways to build law, and that shouldn't be one of them. You don't, you know, you, 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 it would be really weird if you said, oh, we're going to decide that the speed limit in that 35 mile an hour zone is, is, is really 27 because people start giving you tickets at 27, or we're going to make it 52 because that's when they start giving you, you know, just based on enforcement history. I don't have any problem with, with some of the things that the FTC has done, like guidance, where they've They've come out with information basically telling us what they want us to be doing. I'm happy to have that. I'm happy to know what they're interested in. And I can work with my clients to say, look, you want to be really careful on what you're doing here. They're clearly paying attention to these things. I, I don't have any problem with that. But to say to somebody, again, even if they're if, if the deception part, put that aside, because you can't just you can't justify that. But if somebody says appropriate things and accurate things and are going to be told later that we just think that's not, you're not allowed to do that, even though nobody told you that beforehand. I think that's a problem. I think I have similar concerns to Kirk. Um, coming from the data science side, one of the things I think about a lot, especially in the post-Dobbs landscape, is that suddenly it feels like the data we were using in terms of health, and particularly reproductive health, but health in general, to forward and create better health outcomes for women, people who give birth, um, non-binary, uh, trans individuals, suddenly that information is not going to be so easy to access for research purposes. And now what's interesting from an, uh, a research point of view is uh, research, specifically health research for improved health outcomes, consistently across industry and academic scholarly literature is something that consumers advocate for even, not just are okay with, but will actively advocate for their data being used in what we call real-world data to create real-world evidence for improved health outcomes. If we go into very reactionary states and say, this is all sensitive data, it has to have all these protections, it cannot be accessed by any means, that we're cutting off a little bit of our nose to spite our face in, in the most well-meaning way, which is to say, we're looking to protect people um, who may be uh, poorly impacted by post-Dobbs uh, legal um, marginalization, but that in so doing, we're asking ourselves people to sacrifice um, all the good that uh, the health data that comes from non-HIPAA context does. Um, and I'm sort of being a woman... Um, Myself, I'm, I sort of feel like I'm caught between a rock and a hard place here. It's like, yes, I do want to be protected. Thank you. Um, I would like to have my bodily autonomy protected. But I also would like to continue to be part of clinical trials so that I can have better health and my you know, descendants may have better health in the future, that the future generations may have better health. And so I see 
the struggle for both companies and policymakers to try and figure out how do we legislate and regulate in a way that maintains the growth and progress that we've had in health based on things like data and information while also protecting that data and information. And of course, it gets even more complicated in the United States because we are, in fact, um, 50 small countries that wear the same trench coat. Um, and thus, we are leading to the uh, quasi-comprehensive, somewhat comprehensive data laws in a 50-state solution, which nobody is on board for. Um, and we would like to find a solution, as I mentioned, that maintains the progress we've made in virtual health, in digital health, in digital data around health outcomes, um, while also protecting uh, what we've come to joy and value as privacy. And I think you know the, your your points about research are really important in this context. I mean, I, yeah, you 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 can do research on shopping habits to figure out what's the best pair of jeans. I, I don't care, you know, <laughs> nobody nobody cares that much about that, but. Medical research, clinical research, health research is, you know, there's a societal value to that that goes beyond just what an individual person's interests are. There, there are certainly people, I don't particularly agree with this view, but I understand it. There are certainly people who think that the HIPAA rules have impeded medical research. And I think it is somewhat fair to say that during COVID, for example, where we had, you know, an urgent need for really fast research that there was some bending of some of the rules on how we were going to identify potential patients and things like that. And we, we I don't want to say we turned a blind eye, but we didn't look all that closely at, at, at some of the details on that. Your, your 50 state analogy is, is, is a fair one. I don't trust the legislatures on any of this stuff. On I just think it's too hard for them. I'm always somebody who would rather see the experts dealing with this rather than the generalists. But, but part of the problem with our structure now is we don't have one set of experts or one set of experts who can do all this stuff. The, the OCR, Office for Civil Rights, who does HIPAA, can't solve data that's outside of HIPAA. The FTC doesn't really have any authority to rewrite the rules for inside HIPAA. They may go around the margins. All of them fit together. Each one of them is a really hard, difficult issue on its own. But then trying to put it together is, is that is, is almost impossible. But I don't think the answer is to just blindly ignore it all, which is sort of what we're doing with these with, with both the state laws and the uh, uh, the potential national federal privacy law as well. I want to wrap us up. We've talked a lot about the stakes of these issues and all the tensions that are present that make it really tricky and difficult to parse them out uh, and to actually make decisions and choices about how uh, regulating or regulatory solutions uh, might account for those different tensions. So for folks who are listening, who are interested in jumping into this space and getting involved and learning more uh, and contributing to the work, uh, what are your sort of recommendations or thoughts on where to get involved and, uh, and how to learn? Health privacy, for a variety of reasons, has gotten less attention in the you know, academic space as well, frankly. And so I think, I think there's more attention to overall information privacy, not enough distinctly to healthcare privacy. I mean, I, 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 I happen to teach a healthcare privacy class. There are a handful of those around the country, very, very few of those. Um, 
I think that there is a baseline lack of understanding in both law students, privacy professionals in general about how HIPAA works. I think they just don't understand it. I don't think it's that hard. Um, I think, you know, I think there, there's, there's, there's some baseline knowledge. I have a, um, you know, I have a HIPAA for beginners piece that I, that I give out to my classes and I, you know, happy to, happy to provide it to any of your listeners who want it, but it's, no, it's not that hard. It's just, you've got to, it's not intuitive. There's nothing intuitive about how HIPAA works. It's not, you would never have, if, if, if your assignment was to write a healthcare privacy regulation, you would never have ended up with the HIPAA rules you would have never had that. We were stuck with certain restrictions and the rules from those restrictions, I think are very good, but they couldn't solve all the problems. So I think understanding the basics of HIPAA, I think, you know, those two cases that, that Jordan's alluded to, the GoodRx and BetterHelp are, are the hot topical current, current things to pay attention to. Um, you know, if you want to test yourself, go read the California Confidentiality of Medical Information Act. And, and seriously, try to figure out what the hell it means. And I don't, I mean, it's really, I don't know, I don't know what they're trying to do in that. It applies to people in HIPAA, out of HIPAA. It says some things are the same, some things are different, some things are more, some things are less. I, you know, I have no idea what they're trying to do there. Um, those are certainly, certainly some basics. And, and I would also pay some attention to the policy considerations, the understanding why for example, HIPAA is written the way it is. You you could write HIPAA even within the context of, of, of its limitations to give patients more rights. There was just a decision in a, in a variety of places in the HIPAA rules where the regulators said, we're going to give them really good rights. We're not going to give them perfect rights. We're going to give them really good rights because going from really good to perfect is going to be bad for the healthcare system. And I think understanding that is, is hard but really important, just as said, because this, I think this conceptually, this space is different. And one of the things we focus on today is, yes, we understand why conceptually it's different, but understanding the boundaries of what's different and why it's different is really hard. And that's where all, all of our attention is today. So this is a great question. And I want to go back all the way to the beginning to Kirk and I both mentioning that we had winding roads into this space that really kind of started, at least for me, at home. I was interested in climate science. I was interested in environmental social science for really improved outcomes at a population scale. But within that, I also knew I had to collect health data on people who may or may not want that data shared in an identifying way. So really my interest in privacy and specifically health privacy began in my home region, the Pacific Northwest, and also in my home interest, which was environmental science and regional planning. So wherever we are, and I think Kirk and I have both alluded to this, privacy touches and often health privacy touches. So my thought is start where you are, figure out where privacy touches what you're doing now, figure out where health privacy touches what you're doing now. In any case, that can be anywhere at any time. So for example, I might think of if someone is in marketing and I'm going to give what I have just pattern ID'd, I guess, as something that's going to be up and coming in the job landscape is marketers that know how to use data to market without tripping over privacy. Um, Because currently right now with AI and such, marketers can just draw on the stores of AI data within a company and create great marketing schema 
But, and if you look at the BetterHelp uh, case, you see that where this becomes a challenge, if they're not trained to work with that information, work with that data directly in an effective way, um, it can lead to problems and can lead to pitfalls um, for individuals and companies. So my advice is start where you are, start where you are in a career journey, in a regional journey, geo journey, wherever you're at, start and just look around you and see what you can find that's related to health privacy. Indeed. Well, thank you both. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.